This is Saving Brothers with Philip Robertson on the Saving Brothers podcast. Well, brothers, here we are again. It's Wednesday night here in Melbourne, but it's Wednesday morning in London. And I'm absolutely thrilled to catch up with one of our coaches, but I would say this lady, I would call her a friend, and that is Rachel Sutherland, who hails from England. Rachel, absolutely good morning and welcome. Good morning, Phil. Thanks ever so much for having me here. And thanks also for giving me the opportunity to be a coach on Saving Brothers and, and helping get to help more people. I really appreciate it. Oh, do you know what, Rachel? I've so enjoyed the conversations we've had over probably the last 18 months. Mm-hmm. And I think... When you follow people, as you know, we, we came through uh, our journey together really through an affiliate marketing business, didn't yeah. we, where we were learning how to do video content and I was watching your videos and vice versa and it really gave me an insight into who you are and that was really the, the reason I welcomed you and approached you to come on board at Saving Brothers and I know your passion from your heart is about helping other people and let's hope we can uh, do some of that today. So what I wanted to chat with you about, of course, your area of expertise is trauma therapy and coaching and also dealing with people that have dealt with different forms of abuse. And I thought, what a great place to start, which is, Rachel, share with the brothers how you came to be doing what you're doing. And secondly, why is it that you do this? Lovely. Thanks, Phil. Um, how I came to be doing what I'm doing is a bit of a long story and I don't mean to bore everyone, but I think it, set, I think it sets a foundation for who I am and, and why I do what I do. So, oh, years ago, many, many years ago, probably more years than we can care to remember, um, I started working voluntary in a mental health drop-in centre. And um, I was just making tea and playing games of cards and Scrabble and things like that. I was just, I was just around and... Um, the more I got to know um, the people who use the mental health drop-in centre, the, the more it became apparent that these were just, they were really, really wonderful people that had got stuck. Things that happened to them in their lives that weren't of their doing it, weren't their fault, but it created these problems for them that had kept them stuck in life. And they'd ended up with these awful, excuse me, these awful diagnoses of like PTSD and all, all these awful things that they felt they had to, stay with all their lives and that was them and that became their identity and I felt at a very intuitive level that this wasn't true these these were wonderful people that had just been held back in life so um I started to um I I left there and eventually and I got paid work and I kept working in mental health and I kept coming across these wonderful people who have got stuck in life through no fault of their own and I thought well this this isn't right these people don't deserve to be stuck and there must be something to set them free And it became, you know, something I really wanted to learn about. And something I had found very useful in my life was um, holistic health and well-being NLP. And I had the opportunity to train in that. And um, I just grabbed it. And when I was training in it, I was sort of just really just doing it for me and just for um, interest. I wasn't really looking at where it could lead me. But because I worked in mental health a long time by then, and because of my voluntary work I've done, um, a colleague of mine said, oh, there's a job going in this mental health charity, working with people one to one. 
why don't you go for it now you've got this NLP? And I said, oh, lovely. And I, I, I went for it and I got the job. And um, that was that. So I was um, working one-to-one with people and really enjoying it. But it came apparent really quickly that I needed to train in some kind of trauma-focused, some kind of trauma-informed way. Because it seemed that every time we drilled down to what was the root of the anxiety, the root of the depression, there was always a trauma there. There was always that thing keeping that wonderful person stuck from moving on and living the life they wanted to. And that's what I did. I trained I trained in EMN, that's eye movement neurointegration. And that's the holistic version of EMDR. And um, I, I just started work, working that and we just went from there, really. So, um, and, and why I do what I do, hopefully it's come out and while I've been talking to you, Phil, why I do what I do is to set people free from what's keeping them stuck because there's no need for people to be stuck. These things can be moved through. There's no reason once someone gets a diagnosis that, you know, normally these diagnoses have the awful word disorder after them. And people think that's it. That's them for life. I've got generalized anxiety disorder. I've got post-traumatic stress disorder and that's it. It's not it. We can move on from these things. And that's that's why I do what I do. So to enable to set set people free from what's holding them back. Yeah, that's incredible. I think you're right. Most people are really, really good people, but they've had an event. They've had something in their past that is remaining as a trigger. And as you said, they get stuck and they just need some skills to be able to move through that challenge and to be able to work with someone that they can intuitively in their gut and their heart trust that will take them on that journey through those those things. And they just need a map in a way to find a way to navigate through and around some of those challenges, without a doubt. So what I think would be a really good thing, question to ask you, which I think a lot of the brothers would be asking, you know, what is it that trauma therapy and coaching is? And then the second part of that question is also what is it not? Lovely. Thanks, Phil. So what it isn't, it's not raking through the past. It's not raking through trauma. It's not talking about what happened and how bad it was and the minutiae of the story and everything like that. It's not that. If if people want to talk about that in a session, of course they can. I mean, the, the sessions I do, it, the, the clients I see, they're in charge and they set the pace and they set the agenda. Everything is client-led and and bespoke to them so if someone wants to go into the story about what happened that's fine and and that's great but what trauma therapy isn't about is re-traumatizing someone so if I'm ever in a session with someone they start to get into the story and they start to get you know hyper aroused and it's slowing that down and closing that down and resourcing and breathing and and bringing some calm back but um so it's it's not about re-traumatizing people but trauma but it fundamentally disconnects us from ourselves. So we, we become disconnected from ourselves and we become disconnected from other people. So trauma therapy is about reconnecting, reconnecting ourselves to ourselves again and, and connecting to ourselves and our feelings in a way that we can start to move to calm and soothe ourselves. And it's about um, understanding what's happened to us and also about how what's happened to us has shaped our current and present experiences. So it's about joining the dots, if you like, from what's happened to what's happening now. And part of that is looking at um, the behavioural adaptations that we have brought into being as a result of this trauma. These old patterns we've laid down 
to protect ourselves. So it could, it could well be that um, we've laid down a pattern in our lives to protect us, which worked very, very well while we were in the trauma. And it was completely genius to keep us safe and to keep us from getting triggered and everything. But this same pattern works against us now in our current life. So it's about identifying these old patterns and changing them from patterns that um, hold us back and don't serve us to patterns that move us forward in the world. That, that's what it's all about, really. So it really should be called resource therapy, but then no one would know what we were talking about. <laughs> yeah, if that's a yeah. good Do you have a set time frame that one would typically work with you, or is that going to be very different for each of your clients? Yes, it is very, very different. I mean, at the moment, I do a lot of work for a um, domestic abuse charity, and the sessions are funded and we get 12 funded sessions. So sometimes we can work within that, and that's great. Um, other times, if, if, we're, if we're looking at deep childhood abuse, deep childhood trauma, and obviously then sometimes there's, there's generational trauma as well. I mean, the mother may have been abused, and then that comes down and through, and then the daughter's abused. And we're talking lifelong trauma and also historical trauma genetic trauma as well so those 12 sessions don't cut it and um, other other times sometimes you can um have those 12 sessions and um get done in three get done in eight you know so it's really it's and interestingly enough phil i find that men move through faster than women do you have a theory you have a reason in your many years of working in this space is there a is there a theory in your own mind as to why you think men uh, are men more motivated to get a solution what do you think i think men just like it as men just like it direct it's a little bit it's a little bit how how men shop as a i want this i'm going to go into this shop i'm not going to look about me i'm going to go and get this item i'm going to come out men are a lot more focused i think yeah, more matter yeah. of fact. So, the yeah, and they're just like, just give it to me, and you know they don't, they don't, you know they, you, there's, there's no beating around the bush. You just, they're just straight in, and they, I do enjoy working with men because it is, it is a lot, um, not easier, but um, it's, it's a different, it's a different way of working. Um, interestingly enough, my my colleague who I work with, um, there's two of us in the trauma therapy team for the domestic abuse charity. She prefers to work with women than men so if a man comes through to the to the domestic abuse place I, I tend to see them anyway so I have more experience working with men than her and that, I, I love that yep yeah I would have thought and I, and I know you and I have spoken about this off air together on our own private zoom calls that COVID the challenges that we've all been going through let's say since March 2020 has really been one of the triggers that's brought up a lot of anxiety and brought up a lot of past events, traumas for people. Yeah, absolutely. If you think about the adult population, nearly 70% of adults have unresolved trauma. So when when we have, um, which is why when I was working before digging down to the roots of anxiety and depression, I was finding trauma because most of us have it. We're human beings. It can happen to any one of us. Um, it could happen to you and I today. And, you know, and so um, but, but when COVID came along, it, it triggered loads of little traumas like loss. People had experienced loss and abandonment. 
trauma by its nature isolates us and we've had to spend a lot of time in isolation we we need our tribe we need our tribe to heal we need our tribe tribe to speak to and relate to we haven't had that so covid has really affected a lot of people from from a trauma point of view people um even in my own past because i'm I'm a child of um divorced parents that i've had um loss and abandonment in my own life as a result of that and when covid happened i experienced some some trauma that i had to work with myself as a result of that so i i know firsthand how much how covid can trigger feelings of loss and abandonment and, and threaten us yeah i totally I mean, I know myself, I'm, also, I'm, I'm divorced. My parents are divorced, but they're amicably and happily divorced. But in Melbourne, where I live, we had a rule in place that you were not allowed to leave your home for other than for essential services. And I have two sons that live with their mum, but we were not allowed to travel more than five kilometres from our home. So I couldn't see my boys. I didn't see my boys for several months. And uh, they're young men now, 21 and 19. But I certainly, that whole feeling of disconnection was really really difficult and I think we are as humans we're social creatures Rachel as you would know and we are also tactile so human connection whether it be a hug a handshake just to connect a smile with somebody in the street we we I think all of us we the world of all suffered what is it do you think though why so many people and we really are our audience specifically is men at saving brothers why do you think we just don't either a acknowledge our traumas and b do something about it a lot of the time we don't know the traumas are there i know that sounds a bit a bit daft i mean it's it's obvious when we're talking about big obvious traumas and I don't yeah. want to trigger anyone here, but fires and car crashes and plane crashes and combat stress, things are, things that are big and obvious. It's easy to know that we've been traumatised. But sometimes we don't know we've been traumatised. We can be traumatised um, by really small things because the way the brain responds when we go into trauma is because we, we're trying to survive. So if we feel emotionally or psychologically or physically vulnerable, then the brain starts to work on trauma, which means that we move from using our front brain, our thinking analytical reasoning brain, to using our back brain, which is our survival-based brain. So this can happen when we're in a traumatic experience that's obviously traumatic, like a fire, say, or a car crash. It can also happen when we're a child and our siblings offered a suite and we're not. So it's, um, I, for, I forgot your question, I'm sorry, Phil. No, that's okay. No, no, no. Talking around the sort of things of why some men will acknowledge and say, yes, I'm going to do something about this. And then the, I think the majority of us as brothers, we tend to not do something. And you actually did answer my question because, as you said, sometimes we seemingly don't know that there's a trauma going on. And what you were saying is the little traumas, not necessarily the big events, can just trigger us. I mean, I find sometimes I can be watching something on the TV. I could hear a piece of music. I could just see something in the street. And it might be very innocuous, but it could be the little thing that sets me off to I associate that with a past event. And before I know it, I'm actually in a a situation where I'm struggling and feeling quite vulnerable. And, And I think part of the challenge is for us as men, 
and as brothers is really the acknowledging that it's okay that you are dealing with something. But I think the most important thing is to is to seek help, seek connection and seek to work through that or at least acknowledge what's going on because you might think it's something very minor, but it actually might be significant linked to other things. Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. Tra- trauma can be quite insidious in a way because we, we don't realise, like you say, we can just see a sight or a sound and that uh, on something will just trigger us off. And that, that's very much because when when we're in a traumatic experience, whether physically, emotionally, psychologically, and that front brain switches off and that back brain switches on, there's a structure in the back brain called the amygdala and that stores trauma. But what it does is it stores an emotional imprint of trauma. So it only stores the sights and the sounds and the smells and the tastes and the feelings of that time. And then it starts to act like an overreactive guard dog with a radar gun from the moment that emotional imprint imprint's made to protect us from it happening again. So it's scanning our environment for anything remotely similar to that original traumatic experience. And because it's an old primitive part of the brain, it's not that accurate. So we our our trauma might have um featured the color green for example and we might be out shopping one day and or just walking down the street and it's raining and someone walks past us with the green umbrella and that absolutely we just see the green and the next thing we know we've jumped two hedges or we're hiding under a bus stop and and we think we're going mad and everyone around us thinks because because that's really inappropriate behavior for a green umbrella <laughs> but our, our amygdala has, has just clocked the green and it's triggered off an alarm for the rest of the brain that this trauma that we're, I'm trying to protect you from is happening again. Stay safe. But um, so we're acting disproportionately. We're acting um, like, like we're going mad. We feel we're going mad. Other people look as if we're going mad. And, um, but we're not. It's completely normal. So the, the brain's just trying to protect us. And the thing about trauma is it has all these horrible symptoms to it that are called always awful names and and we think there's something wrong with us but it's actually the trauma that's abnormal and we're behaving normally responding normally in response to a trauma there's nothing wrong with us when we're traumatized there's everything right with us and everything abnormal about the trauma i think that's so really really because I think we then start to label ourselves and I think unfortunately a lot of people in society label us as being this or having that and I think that's a beautiful uh, revelation for our brothers, a really important one. So thank you for that. Question then I've got is what if a client of yours has little or no memory of that trauma in the past? What then? That, that is a good question because we don't tend to have a congruent sequential memory of trauma because like I say, the amygdala, it just holds on to the emotional imprint of the trauma. So we're not going to have a narrative of from what happened from A to B. We're, we're not going to have that. We're just going to have flashes, colours, sensations. And and a lot of the time when we've been traumatised and and especially not not with anything where we're completely overwhelmed. I mean, tra- trauma is basically um, our capacity to cope being overwhelmed, and the brain will keep it away from us to keep to again to keep us safe. So we won't have a memory of it a lot of the time, but we will still have those flashes, the the sights, the sounds, the feelings, the tastes, the smells of that time. So when people are working with me. 
sometimes I have no memory of what's happened and sometimes they don't want to talk about what's happened because it's too triggering for them. It's too re-traumatizing for them. They don't even want to go there. And that's fine. We don't need a memory and we don't need people to talk about it. We've, if we've got a feeling, we can work with that. And we've usually got a feeling because the emotional brain, the, the amygdala, has held on to the feeling as the feeling was the problem. So if people have symptoms of the trauma, like the panics and the flashbacks and everything, we can work with it. We don't need a story. We don't need a narrative. We don't need a memory. Often what happens is that as people start to learn to reconnect with themselves and as they learn to start to calm and soothe, memories start to come back. But the brain will only remember when we're ready to remember. It won't start to remember if it's going to be too much for us. It will keep it away if it's going to be too much for us. It's only going to start. To, and the, these symptoms of trauma, these night terrors and the flashbacks and the panic attacks and things, they're signs that the brain is ready to heal from trauma. They're signs going, hey, I'm here. I'm ready to heal. And they wouldn't be there if the brain wasn't ready to heal. And that's a lot of the time why the memories are kept back. But then if we have symptoms, then it's a sign the brain's ready to heal. Does that make sense? Yes, it absolutely does. And it's interesting that people will say if they've had a road trauma or I've certainly know various types of trauma and they'll say, I've no recollection. I just, I, I don't remember anything that happened about the event. So that's interesting what you're saying about the amygdala, amygdala rather, that it's triggering these feelings these associations without necessarily actually being able to, to verbally express it storing that in a very primitive section of the brain yeah the part of the brain that puts that put, sorry sorry for him to talk over you no no i was just saying i think it's absolutely fascinating it is fascinating the part the part of the brain that puts feelings into words is actually shut down in times of trauma which is why a lot of the time we're not able to do that so we feel something, we're feeling traumatised. Yes, yes, but th there's that wordless horror, isn't there? Yeah. And, and that, that is a lot of the reason why there's a wordless horror, because the part of the brain that, that puts the feelings into words is turned off during trauma. And so is the part of the brain that puts the time-date stamp on something, which is why we couldn't actually say what day it was or what time it was when this thing happened. Yeah, absolutely. The effects of being traumatised, I know we've talked about this before and you've said, Phil, it's not a life sentence and it's and you already touched on this a bit earlier which and you said it's not a disorder. No, no. It, the people who coined the term post-traumatic, I'll use post-traumatic stress disorder as an example, that the people who coined the term post-traumatic stress disorder worked really, really hard to make this a diagnosis because they've been working in veteran hospitals dealing with men dealing with, with combative stress and um the, there was no way to help these people there were just these bunch of symptoms with with no name and, and the, these people were getting treated for all these different things that that weren't actually helping them heal and it wasn't it was a, a lot of eminent psychologists and scientists worked really really hard to get that diagnosis put in in the diagnostic and statistical manual but what was meant by the disorder part was that a person's life becomes disordered when these symptoms happen not that they are disordered but over the time it's we we've come to think that especially when we go and see a psychiatrist or or a doctor and they say 
you have post-traumatic stress disorder because we've got all these horrible symptoms and everything and we're we're having it and we're experiencing it we think that we're disordered naturally so but it's not us as disordered it's the fact that our life becomes disordered once this once these symptoms start and, and we have we have this diagnosis so it's not it's not us it's it's what's happening to us I'm, I'm, very for people when they when they start to understand that a lot of trauma therapy is about understanding there's a lot of psychoeducation in trauma therapy about trauma and the brain and how trauma is stored in the brain and and that's a lot of the groundwork we do in in trauma therapy is about learning to understand what's happening to us and what's happening to us is normal and natural and it's not our fault it's just a normal natural way and actually our brain we, there's nothing wrong with us for behaving like that. I think that's quite frankly, I think it's wonderful what you've just shared. And I think that must be almost like a weight off people's shoulders when they say you're actually you're responding to this situation in the most appropriate way, in a perfectly normal way. You're not there's nothing wrong with you. Yes, you're you're having this event or this, but it's actually because I think sometimes the whole idea of being labelled, you've got a label, and in this case, as you said, those that had combative uh, disorders and it became, well, the label we're going to call it is post-traumatic stress disorder, then then you're in a box. You've been put into a, a category and yeah. that is a burden in itself for some. For some it's probably also liberating because there's that, that feeling of that's what it is, okay, but I think your approach, I really find that actually quite liberating. Lovely. Yeah, a lot, a lot of my clients do feel that relief. And, and another thing you said about, Phil, you, you're not stuck. Trauma by its nature keeps us stuck because the amygdala holds on to the trauma and scans for anything remotely similar to protect us and keep us safe. So the trauma has got stuck in us. It's stuck in our, our body and and. In, in, in um, you know the, the sights and sounds and smells and everything it's, it's got all stuck so it's it needs to move through and the way I work helps the trauma move through because that's that's how that's how you resolve trauma you just help it move through because that's what it wants to do usually um when we're traumatized we're in a position where we can't escape and we feel really powerless and helpless so because we can't escape at the time and because we feel powerless and and helpless at the time the trauma stays in us so what we need to do after after we've done the groundwork and the psychoeducation and the reconnection to ourselves then we can start to work on clearing the trauma using a technique similar to emn or emn itself and that helps the trauma move through it helps the amygdala release what it's holding on to so it stops scanning for the things it's scanning for yeah, I love that. And I guess that probably then dovetails into my next question was you've just just touched on a little bit there, which is what's needed before embarking on trauma therapy coaching. Right. Now that's a big thing. Um trauma therapy is not a walk in the park. It really isn't a walk in the park. You need a lot of courage and a lot of commitment to embark on trauma therapy. And that's not because, like I say, we're going to go raking through old trauma and talking about how bad things were. It's because trauma therapy is change work and change work is scary and people don't want to change. So you need to be committed to yourself and you need to be committed to the change process to embark on trauma therapy. 
I mean, a lot of people, myself included, um, it's easier to hang on to the old because it's familiar rather than change and, and go into the new. So um, when, we're, when we're in trauma, I've touched on it before, um, we adapt. So we start behaving in different ways to cope with the trauma, to cope with the environment, and that these ways of adaptation start to work against us. So it's having the courage to stop using our old patterns and start creating new ones. It's having that courage. So that, that's what's needed is, is courage and commitment. I totally oh, agree. agree. We, my observation of humans is humans don't like change. No, Not many people like to change into it. They like a sense of certainty. Absolutely, we do. And that's also why the COVID thing's been so difficult because it, it did it threw everything up. We, we had no, no certainty. It was all no, uncertainty. No. We didn't know anything. No, and, and, and there was no normality to it. And now, now we've had to adopt and, and adapt to this new form of what we would call normal. Yeah. I think, yeah, quite incredible. What would one expect from taking on that, being courageous, wanting that change and being committed to trauma therapy coaching? What would they, what's to be expected? Well, what, um, how I'd work with a client is, first of all, I'd identify um, the areas of disconnection, help them identify the areas of disconnection and help start people reconnect. Trauma therapy is lovely because it's not something that's done to you. It's something that we do in collaboration. It's not like I'm the therapist or there's a therapist and there's a client. It's, it's an equal playing field. It's an equal relationship where we work together for what the client wants. So really that, and, and how how that works is bespoke to every single client. I very I very much, it sounds awful thing to say for, but I never know what I'm doing <laughs> because I never know what someone's gonna come and bring me and I never know what we're gonna be working with. It's just what I'm working with is what I'm working with now and let, let's feel our way together and work through this. So, so I suppose from, from that point of view, some, someone can expect, um, bespoke sessions that are tailored completely to them and we go at a client's pace and they set the agenda and I am here merely to facilitate the changes a client wants to make. Yeah, I think that's rather than a prescriptive way and it's very much a not, it's intuitive as opposed to one size fits all, oh, you're this right, this is what we're going to do. You're allowing it just to really naturally take its course. Yeah. Yeah, it has to because we're all as unique as our fingerprints and how one person responds to a trauma won't be the same as how another person responds to a trauma because we've all got our different levels of resilience and our different experiences before the trauma. Tra- I mean, trauma is always stored in the same way in the brain and the way through it's usually really similar. But the person that's coming, the person that's in front of you is is always different. So it's, it's, it's working with those differences. And, and even similar types of trauma, their own projection of that or their internal interpretation of what does that mean to them is going to be different for every single human being. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Most definitely. Confidentiality, Rachel, I can imagine, is just such a pivotal cornerstone of the, the investment of work that you do. Talk to our brothers about just how important that, that is, confidentiality. Well, it's essential, I think. It's, it's absolutely, I wouldn't go and see anyone and talk about my deepest, darkest 
um, if I knew that it was going to be leaked out somewhere. And trauma is our deepest, darkest because we keep it hidden from ourselves. We don't even know that some of the stuff is there. I mean, I can be working with someone and um, something will come up that will take us both by surprise. And, and the client will go, well, I didn't know that was going to come out, you know, and I didn't know that was there. So we're digging deep in trauma therapy and, and we're finding things that we've buried from ourselves deeply to protect ourselves from the knowledge of them so we don't get distressed by them. So we, we definitely need that kept really tight between you know, the therapist and, and the client that needs to be completely tight unless of course and the proviso always is unless the the, thera the therapist or the coach identifies them um, somewhere where the client's going to harm themselves or somebody else and then we have to break confidentiality to get the client the the help they need because it's not us anymore they've moved on from that it's some something it's another professional they need then yeah it makes sense what can you, without, again, breaking confidentiality, can you just share the sorts of things that you're doing in, in the space, in your profession at the moment, the types of trauma that you are common? Because it might just even help some of the brothers to realise, oh, okay, that's the sort of thing that Rachel works on or with. Yes, that would be something that I would be interested in exploring further with Rachel. Hmm. Well, that's a really, really open, expansive question, Phil, because it, it, it is it is anything. Um, like I say, you can we can be traumatised by a sibling being offered a sweet and us not, but we don't know that's there. We don't know why we've just turned down that job offer in New York, but we've turned it down. So I suppose that an easiest way to answer that question is that trauma always creates a limiting belief, because as as well as the sights and sounds and smells and tastes and feelings that the amygdala holds on to when we're traumatized we create a limiting belief to prevent us from being or doing or saying things that might put us in that position again so if we have a limiting belief that's working against us then trauma work is for you and and also along with that limiting belief goes as behavioral adaptations as well i mean an obvious example is not getting back in a car again after a car crash or not being able to drive down that particular road. Something that, that we've adapted into our behaviour that's, that's stopping us living fully in the world. But any anything really, I, mean, I work with all kinds of trauma, anything that holds people back. So I know that's not very um, specific, is it? But any, any... What about even in the workplace? You mean... Um, if people have suffered some trauma, whether it might be with uh, other people in the workplace, I'm not necessarily referring to sexual trauma. It could be bullying, for example. Yeah, yeah, it's big. Yeah, absolutely. Relational trauma is a massive thing because relational trauma can come about from our early childhood experiences. Say, so we, we went, may not have even known that our our environment was unhealthy or even toxic, but if we have those these seeds set in childhood about how to relate to others. Like a good example is um, people-pleasing, the, the drive to have to make everyone happy. If we were brought up in a house where um, it wasn't okay to say no and we, and we had to make everyone else happy all the time to the detriment of ourselves, we're going to take it into our adult life. So that, that's going to make us very susceptible to school bullying, workplace bullying, that kind of thing. Oh, I've got plenty of people. How often we talk about 
being empowered and the ability to say no because, oh, look, you never say no. You always take on another task and it's to your own detriment because it's to your physical health, it could be to your family because you always say, yeah, I'll get that done because I want the boss to, to be happy with my work. And then, of course, the opposite at home is impacted because then you're late, you're impacting your family relationship. Yeah or you're missing out on sport or being healthy because you're doing too much work because, you, again, you were unable to say no. Yeah, and that is a really good example because the inability to say no is probably more than likely held in place by a limiting belief is there because of a result of a trauma that we don't realise is a trauma. Absolutely. That's a really good example. Yeah, yeah because I know myself. I, I'm, I'm a, I like to make people happy, and and I take some things on that I just think, you know, this is really not serving me because I might be mentally fatigued, and there's other areas of my life that whether I can invest in myself, even when you know, as you know, with Keep Five Alive, number one on the Keep Five Alive program is self care, but we don't have that self care because we're too busy trying to earn. Mm-hmm points or doing what we think is the right thing by others to our own detriment. And I think that's a great strength. That, to me, is a real positive of working through the trauma of of being able to actually feel empowered to be able to say no. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I work with a lot of – because I I do a lot of work with domestic abuse charity at the moment, the the inability to say no is is, is a big thing, the the people-pleasing thing. That's a really big thing I help people with. Yeah, definitely. Talk, talk to the brothers. I mean, some of them have seen your videos on the in the Facebook group. What is it that you can offer the brothers? Um, what kind of thing do you mean, Phil? What is it that you offer? What is your offer? You know, in terms oh, of my offer. Right, I'm story, with you. I meant to be more specific. No, no, you're fine. You're fine. I'm off on one. I'm really good at sort of swimming around in subconsciousness. But when it comes to like, you know, actual logistics, I'm a bit. Um, yeah. What what I offer the brothers um, if they want to, if they're curious about trauma therapy, I mean, anyone can DM me anytime and ask me anything. That's absolutely fine. But if people are curious about trauma therapy or if after they've listened to this, they think, well, actually, do I have a trauma? Is this behavior held in place by a trauma? Is this the root of my anxiety or depression? then I offer um, a, half, a half an hour free consultation. And that, that's for one of, one of two things. It's to see if I can help, to see if what the symptom is, is held in place by a trauma and whether I can help or not. And also to see if we're a fit. Because, you know, there's personality differences. I mean, someone might look at me and, oh, my God, I don't want to work with her. You know, and it could be, it could be a complete clash. But you don't know that until you get on a call and, and we start to connect. But um, it was really what what really helps her more than anything is that the relationship between coach and client, that's what helps most. If you get a really good rapport with your coach, then that that coach will be able to move you on more than anyone. But it's not them. It's the relationship. So I offer that half an hour so we can see if we're a fit to see if we're going to get on to see if I can actually help with what they want help with. And then going forward, if they want to start booking in sessions, then we can do that. But the first half an hour, that first consultation call is free. I think that's really Rachel. I know you well enough in terms of your personality, your empathic, kind heart, and the way that you really do. Really, really, are you are invested in wanting to help people, and I think that 
because you really have a heart of service, I would say to brothers, guys, if you've got issues that you're not dealing with or perhaps you've just got a question, you're, not, you're unsure, please uh, reach out to Rachel. She would be absolutely delighted to hear from you and see if she can help you in any way. Rachel, for me, I've got to say it's just an absolute honour having you on board with us. As you know, we're going through a lot of growth here at Saving Brothers. There's a lot of things coming and we were just talking off air about the uh, our own app that we've developed and built our own source code. And there'll be a lot of great resources that we'll make available for brothers for, for at no charge, but other resources where they'll be able to find people that they can work with such as yourself. And it's just been an absolute pleasure to catch up with you. And thanks for your time this morning, Wednesday morning here in, uh, in England, uh, Wednesday evening here in Melbourne, Australia. And really looking forward to continuing these discussions over the journey with you here at Saving Brothers, Rachel. So thank you again and have yourself an awesome day. Thank you, Phil. And congratulations on Saving Brothers and the work you're doing because it's amazing. I'm, I'm, I'm always astounded every time I hear the, 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 the news about how it's been driven forward by you. It's, it's incredible. Thank you. Oh, thanks, Rachel. I, mean, I get a great kick out of that. And it, it really does. It helps me as well because I feel better about myself when I'm doing things to help others just like you. So thanks again for being part of the team. Lovely. Great. Thank thanks, you, Rachel. Phil. Bye for yeah, now. Keep bye alive, bye. everyone. Yeah, bye. Keep bye. alive. <laughs> you bet. See you later. This has been a Saving Brothers podcast. Thanks for listening.